Hello. All right. There we are. How's everybody doing? Good. First day, so everybody's not on information overload yet, right? Can y'all hear me in the back okay? Are we good? All right. Um, it's an honor to be here. I'm glad you're here. It's always a just a treat to be able to come out here to Malibu again. It's a hard life when you get to come speak at Malibu, but somebody's got to do it. We all have to bear our cross. Uh, Hey, let's pray, and then uh, I look forward to jumping into some content today, and I hope to, my, my goal is to try to teach in about 35 to 40 minutes and open it up and have a little Q&A, but we will see how that goes, all right? Uh, let's bow our heads, and God, I want to begin just thanking you today. Uh, I'm sure a lot of us in this room just consumed some good food. We've enjoyed some fellowship, and God, we could do all of this, but if you aren't in the, in the middle of it, if you're not all over it, it's, it's meaningless, So we thank you, God, for the connections in this room and in this place, and we ask that you will dispense wisdom and discernment and passion and purpose upon us, that churches will be strengthened through what happens over the next few days. Uh, So God, help us, give us the capacity, just broaden the capacity of our hearts and our minds to be able to receive and to take hold of what it is, just how you want to form us and shape us. And God, I pray for me today that you will give me the passion I need to speak a few words And if I speak anything that doesn't honor who you are, I pray those words will fall to the ground. They'll be trampled and they won't be remembered at all. But if I speak anything that is true to your character, your nature, your mission, that it will sink deep into hearts and it will bear great fruit. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I grew up up going to a church camp just outside of San Antonio called Camp Bandina. Any Camp Bandina folks in the house today? All right, we got, hey, how's it going? Uh, and loved our time there. I will never forget my freshman year at Camp Bandina. I had a teacher, and one day he was just going to walk us through the story of the gospel. So in order to do this, he wanted to lead us through the whole, like, butterfly, you know, uh, the cocoon, and then how the caterpillar becomes a, a butterfly. So he, he was going to lead us through this process and then talk to us about the power of the gospel and what it means to be a new person and a new creation. So he asked for a volunteer, and I think everybody in the class raised their hands, and we didn't even know what it is we were volunteer, volunteering for yet. And he chose a, a girl in our, in our group, and she, he put her up in front of everybody, and he said, here's what we're going to do. And then he gave us about 12 rolls of toilet paper. And he said, I want you to take a few minutes and I want you to wrap her from head to toe. But we need to leave a little space around her nose so she can breathe. So we had a blast doing this. At the time, I was a part of a group in the Mesquite Church of Christ with Josh Kasinger and a few of us. And at the time, we would travel every Friday and Saturday night in Mesquite, and we would roll houses. This was back before people had security systems and snipers on roofs, you know. <laughs> so so we, would, we were good at this. This is what we did. So... So we wrapped this girl just head to toe. She looked like a mummy. She was just standing still. I mean, and we left a little space for her to breathe. And then he was like, Katie, how are you doing? And Katie's like, I'm good. She's talking to, you know, through this toilet paper. And he says, can you, can you breathe? And Katie's like, yes, I can breathe. And he said, can you stand still for a few minutes while I teach the class? And she's like, yeah, I can stand still. So about 10 minutes went by, and he wasn't joking for these 10 minutes. He was talking to us about the power of the gospel, the power of the blood of Jesus, what it means to, for an old self to be gone and, and to be made a new creation and reading scripture, engaging scripture. And for 10 minutes, it was intense. And then he looked over at Katie, and he was like, all right, Katie, we're ready to see you come to life. How many people here want to see Katie come to life? And we're all raising our hands. We're like, we want to see Katie come to life. He's like, all right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to count down from three. And, and, Katie, when we get to one, we want you to come busting out of that toilet paper. And we want you to act like you're a brand-new creation, like a butterfly. And we want you just to come out and start flying around. So he's like, okay, everybody, let's, let's count. Three, two, one. 
and Katie didn't move at all. From, for a moment, we thought, did, did we kill Katie? Like, did we, what happened to Katie? Did we, did we wrap her too tight? Can she not breathe? Nothing happened. So he's like, okay, let's count down again. Three, two, one. Katie didn't move again. And then we started to hear Katie cry inside the toilet paper. And her shoulders are bouncing, so it wasn't just a little cry. Like, she's, she's crying. So then it becomes a conversation between youth minister who's teaching a class and Katie wrapped up in toilet paper. And he's like, Katie, what's wrong? And then she starts, through her tears, sharing with the teacher that she didn't feel like she was at a place in her life where she could come to life. So inside the toilet paper, like God's working on her and this, this brokenness is bubbling up. And come to find out over the last year of her life, her parents had gone through divorce. And she was carrying a lot of the guilt and the shame because of that. So she's processing like some of the brokenness and pain from the last year of her life. So then our teacher is like, how many of you want to see Katie come to life? And we're like, man, we all we want to see her come to life. And he's like, I think Katie needs some help coming to life. And we're like, yes, yeah, she does. He's like, who wants to help Katie come to life? And we're like, man, I guess all of us want to help Katie come to life. And little did we know that what we were about to, about to act out is, is what the church should be acting out every day of our lives that we stood up and we ran over to Katie, and we start clawing the toilet paper off of her, helping her to come to life. And, and years of my life went by, and I'd never reflected on that until probably five, or ten, five, six, seven years ago. I began thinking about that story and what it meant to me and what it meant to our group and what it means to the church today. Because I think a lot of our churches, like I think we do a pretty good job of talking to people about what it means to die to Christ. But sometimes we aren't real sure how to talk to people about what it means to come to life in Christ. Like to die to sin, but sometimes it's really, it's a struggle. Like to, how to give people practical help on what it means to come to life in Jesus in every way imaginable. To where we take Mondays just as seriously, seriously as we take Sundays. And that we take Thursday afternoon meetings just as seriously as we take Sunday morning time. So here's what I want to do today and tomorrow, because a big part of what it means to come to life, I mean, there's so many things of what it means for a, a church to come to life. And I want to talk about how, what it means for the church to navigate Christ and culture. And, and let me just kind of lay out how I want today to go and then, and then tomorrow to go, too. Is I, I, want to, I want to affirm, first of all, just how much I love the church and how much I believe in the church. And I wouldn't be doing what I do if I didn't believe that God, His primary way, to spread the good news of Jesus in the world today and to promote the good of God is in and through the church. So any critique I may give the church today, it doesn't come as someone who's just sitting back and trying to find things that are wrong with the church. It comes from somebody who believes so much in the church that I want to see the church be everything that God has created the church to be. And I want to talk about what it means to navigate culture. So I want, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna spend time today or tomorrow talking about going deep into social issues, um, but I want to talk about social issues. So I'm not gonna unpack for you like, immigration or what it means to, to talk about immigration. In, in the, well, I guess I do want to talk about what it means to talk about immigration in your church, but I don't feel it's my role to tell you what to think about a wall or not a wall. I just know that we live in a time where if we're silent on social issues, we lose a lot of credibility in the world, yet we also can't afford to give 52 weeks a year to social issues because, because we end up watering down the gospel if we do that. So I want to try to help you and empower, especially church leaders in the room, and people have some influence in your churches of how to go back and try to have some of these conversations. So tomorrow I want to come back and spend at least half the time tomorrow talking to you, talking with you about how we've done this at Sycamore View. And we have, we, 
Like we're not writing books because we feel like we've, we've mastered what it means to navigate Christ and culture in our, in our church. But we have spent a few years where I've led our, our leaders through some of these conversations. And we've tried to find the right forums to have conversations about social issues. And, and so, so I want to talk to you a lot more tomorrow about how we've done that and how we've even tried to prioritize some of these conversations within our church. So um, today I want to try to lay a theological foundation for this and then come back tomorrow and do some more. So let, let me start just why I think this is important and why I think there are some major challenges when it comes to engaging in Christ and culture. Sometimes you have people who will say something like, hey, you know what we need to do in our churches? We just need, we just need to preach the gospel in our church. Like we don't, need, we don't need to get caught up in all these other issues going on in the world. We just need to preach the gospel. And I think I understand what people are saying, but I'm not sure if I agree with what people are saying. That sometimes in our churches what we can do is we can make salvation and commitment to Jesus and baptism like the ultimate issue in the life of the church. But then we can make matters of evangelism, service, justice, secondary. So what matters is salvation. And if people choose to live out a life where they're trying to share Jesus and live Jesus and, and be people of justice, then that's fine. But if they don't do it, that's okay too. And I just don't think that the early Christians would have adapted a philosophy like that. That I think for them, it was, we want to be fully immersed in how the gospel of Jesus is trying to penetrate every area of society. So, um, the, the a major problem in, in a lot of, for a lot of us as individuals, but also in the churches, it's so easy for us to become selective moralists. And we're all a selective moralist in one way or another. So, if you choose to speak into a, an issue in the life of your church, there's a good chance you're going to have people who love it. And other people are like, well, if you speak into that, you also need to speak into this. And, and we don't have time in our churches to spend 20 weeks where we go through 20 different social issues. I don't think it's good for our people. So let me, let me begin by just using an example. Uh, I was speaking on, uh, I preached a sermon on racism last January. And uh, anytime, I'm, I've been in Memphis now for 11 years. Anytime I speak about racism, anytime I talk about Dr. King, I know I'm going to have people who love what I have to say, and I also know that emails are going to come in the next day of people who don't like what I have to say. Because whenever it comes to speaking into any issue, what I have found is usually they're going to be the people who say, whew, thank you so much for speaking into that. Now we never have to speak into that again because we already did it today. And they're going to be people who say, thank you so much for speaking into that. I'm glad we finally talked about it. Now we need to talk about this a lot more. Right? Um, so I spoke in the racism, uh, and I've done this a few times, but I preached on racism last January. And in that talk, I showed this one image. I don't know if you know who Lecrae is, but Lecrae is a hip-hop, he's a hip-hop artist. One of the most, probably the most popular hip-hop Christian artist out there. Uh, Lecrae lived in Memphis. He lived in the neighborhood where I'm in. We, he lived in that same neighborhood for a couple of years. Lecrae has put out multiple albums over the last 15 years. Uh, some of his albums have done really well. Two years ago, he had a tweet that went viral, over a million hits, retweets, likes, responses. Some people loved the tweet that he posted, and a lot of people didn't like it. The response to that tweet that Lecrae had, well, here, here's the, what Lecrae posted, and this would have been two, almost three years ago, is he posted, this was my family on July 4th, 1776. So I just showed this in, in our church and just asked people, 
how does that, how does that image right there, how does that make you feel? And I encourage people, no matter how it makes you feel, why don't you take time to talk to a person of color in the life of our church and ask how it makes them feel? It's probably the best way for us to come to an understanding about things, right? This tweet by Lecrae, the response to the tweet, sent him into a deep depression that uh, there were a lot of people responding with, hey, Lecrae, you should just stick to the gospel. Just talk about Jesus. And at the time, Lecrae was beginning to speak up a lot more about some of the injustices in our criminal justice system, about some of the other injustices in the the world. So this sent him into a deep depression. Lecrae uh, began taking medication, uh, began abusing some medication. And it became what Lecrae's last album, it became what, what was the launching point for that album. If you Anybody in here? It looks like we got a lot of hip-hop fans in the room today. (laughs) Uh, But if you listen to the album, it's raw. And he speaks from this dark place and how God was bringing him out of this dark place, which began with something like this. Now, when there are issues today that happen in the world, because we've been a church, we're not afraid to speak into some things. So when there's an African-American who may be shot and killed by a white police officer today, or when there are other issues like what, is, what happened in Charlottesville, or, or even um, some things that have happened with abortion over the last couple of years or, or months. Multiple times, I'll receive messages on Saturday nights from people in our church. And sometimes they come within just a few minutes of each other, where sometimes I'll, I'll receive a message from someone and it'll say, hey, Josh, we're all aware that this event has happened but you know you don't have to speak into every issue that happens. And then within like five minutes, I'll receive another message from someone else who will say, hey, I know you know what has happened, and you've got to say something tomorrow about this. Right? And whatever you say, you're going to have people who love it and people who can't stand it. Um, <clears throat> I know this. Let me just talk about a few other things real quick. We don't want to be an issue-driven church. Uh, We want to be a Jesus-focused church. Um, It's really easy to become issue-driven churches. So so we've made some decisions in the life of our church where we've uh, tried to live into deeper forms of diversity. We've began expanding the role of women in our church over the last five to seven years. And and occasionally I'll meet people within the Memphis context, like bump into them at at a ball game or a Kroger, and they'll know where I preach. And they'll say something like, you know, oh, you're the church that has women in your church. And I play it off. I'm like, yeah, you know, probably 55% of people in our church are women. Because I know know what they're trying to say. But they're like, your church has women. And and what I hate about that is I don't want to be known as the church that has women who do things on Sundays. I want the mission and vision of who we are to be what drives us. And we try to keep that in front of our organization and church at every level of our church. If If you take time in your church to speak on an issue, the goal isn't to win on the issue. It's to speak into it in a way that's faithful to the heart of God. Also, uh, it's not the church's role to tell people how and what to believe about everything that happens in the world. But I do think, and I'm convicted of this to the core, that our role is to equip the body to navigate our culture from the right place. That it is our goal. And, And one of the characteristics given to elders in First Timothy is to have a good, outside, a good reputation among outsiders. And the only way to have a good reputation among outsiders is that you know outsiders. 
So I feel like it is the role of church leaders, and I'm going to walk us through the book of Ephesians in just a moment, is to give the right tools for people to tread through life, to give them the right toolbox so that they're properly equipped to navigate issues. Because everyone in our church isn't going to land on the same spot when it comes to Black Lives Matter, when it comes to numerous social issues. But I think God is trying to form how we think and how we love a neighbor. All right, so let me, uh, let me walk us through two places in the Bible that I think are really important and then try to give some practical things and then open it up for discussion. I'm going to walk us through, and I'm going to try to do this in 10 minutes. I'm going to walk you through the book of Ephesians because I don't think what I'm about to do is the only way to be- read the book of Ephesians, but I do think it's the best way, at least for now, all right? Uh, because the book of Ephesians is leading, leading somewhere. How many of you would say the book of Ephesians is one of your top three favorite books in the Bible? Anybody? All right, I figured. Usually when I ask people, they're multiple folks. People love the book of Ephesians. It's my wife's favorite book. She loves Ephesians and she loves James. So our second child is named Noah James because Noah Ephesians just didn't have the, the right ring to it. All right, so we, so we went with my wife's second favorite book in the Bible. And the, the book of Ephesians, now I know it's debated whether uh, Paul really wrote Ephesians or not, but hey, I go with Paul writing Ephesians. And I know some people uh, also debate whether it was written specifically to Ephesians or someone else, and it just ended up having Ephesians on the name. I just go with Ephesians. I go with Ephesus. Ephesus was a place that was well-known in that context, around 250,000 people, one of the most immoral places to live in the first century culture. Every year there was a large keg fest that happened in the city of Ephesus, where around a million people would descend upon that city and they would drink a bunch, which I think is a context for even Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, where it talks about, hey, don't get drunk on wine, be filled with the Spirit. I think people in Ephesus would have known what Paul was speaking about. There's a lot of pagan temples in Ephesus, a couple of dozen of them. There was uh, magic and witchcraft. You go read Acts 18, 19, when the church in Ephesus was launched, it started with 12 people. 12 people who caught hold of the fire of God, and there are historians a few decades later who talk about there being tens of thousands of believers living in the city of Ephesus. It was a movement that started with 12. God often takes a, a group as small as 12 and can do some amazing, powerful things with it. When people burn their magic books in Acts 19, it's probably the equivalent of close to 7 to $10 million that would have been burned in money today. And they didn't feel like it was right to sell it on Amazon or eBay and give it to the poor. They, hey, we've got to demolish this. So they burned it. Um, let me skip through a few of these. There would have been temples in Ephesus that may have looked something like this. Unfortunately, they didn't have cell phones to snap pictures back then. But it would have looked something like this, a large temple. Everybody would have been able to see it. So let me walk you through the book of Ephesians. Because if you were in that church, there's a good chance you grew up in Ephesus. There's a good chance you would engage in a lot of the more immorality that had happened in the city. So let me, let me try to work through this as quickly as possible. It begins with Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And I'm not reading every verse of Ephesians, even though at the first it's going to feel like that. Right after that, he says, to the saints. How do you think that would have felt? If you grew up in the city of Ephesus and you would engage in a lot of the immorality and evil in the city. And then the first thing you read in this letter is Paul to the saints. Um, I may be wrong, but I think I'm right about this. When the word saints is used in the Bible, it's never in the singular form. I believe it's 71 to 72 times it's used throughout the Bible. And it's always in the plural form. It's not that you are a saint, it's that we are, we are saints. 
had a woman who reached out to me back in January. She emailed me. She said, Josh, I've been away from the church for a number of years because I got pregnant at the age of 17, and I reached out to a church and asked if I could be baptized, and they refused. They said they wouldn't baptize me. And I was like, man, churches really do that? And she said, so I haven't been to a church, but I feel like God's working in my life. I have two kids now, and I want to get my life right. Would you all have a conversation with me about it? I'm like, of of course we would. And it just happened that this next Sunday was a Sunday that we were, it was our new arrival day, our new arrival blessing day, our baby blessing day. So we had 17 new babies in the life of our church. They were bringing up moms, dads, and the babies to pray over them on our stage. We had a room, a whole stage full of babies. And for the first time in a number of years, we had a teenager in our church who had a baby. And the question was asked, do we include her or not? And I love that we have a leadership right now that there they wasn't even a question for them. Of course we bring her up on stage. And of course we pray over her. And we anoint the baby and we surround her. It was wonderful, beautiful. And for this woman who in January emailed me because that she couldn't be baptized years ago or was refused baptism. For her to be baptized on a day where she witnesses a teenager who had a baby and a church surrounded her and said, hey, we're not letting you fall. We're not going to leave you alone. It was a wonderful witness. And for her to see on a day about what it means to like be a saint, like a new creation, coming alive to God, in God. To the saints in Ephesus. I love that when Paul writes to churches, most of the time he doesn't call them, you know, it's not the church that meets at Main Street or second, you know, the second church in the city or any other name. It's the name of uh, the churches that exist in that city. So Ephesus, Rome, that God didn't give up on those places. The first part of when Paul, like, jumps into the meat of his letter begins with the word blessed, which I believe is probably something he lifted straight from Genesis 1. Straight from Matthew 5, when the first thing Jesus says in the New Testament, when he begins his public ministry, is it begins with the word blessed. And I'm sure a lot of people in those churches, it was still something they needed to hear. So he begins with blessed. Now, in chapter 1, 3 through 14, it's all one run-on sentence. Some of you probably knew that. It's the longest sentence in the Bible. If it was an English professor giving a grade to Paul in Ephesians 1, he would have failed. There's no commas in there. It is one big run-on sentence. A uh, quick story, I was preaching Ephesians, this was probably five, six years ago in the life of our church. I was preaching Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. And my wife left and she went out of town. And uh, so for two days, I had to put the boys down at night and do all daddy duty. And my appreciation for what my wife does all the time, like, it skyrocketed. I was like, I, how do you do this? I thought it was easy to take kids and go get four items from the grocery store. It's not that easy. So I was putting them to bed one night, and they're like, Dad, we want to sing a song. And I'm like, all right, let's sing a song. And they're like, we want to make up a song tonight. So they brought out a guitar and a drum set. They were probably five and three at the time. And they stood up in front of the living room in front of me, and they start singing a song and making up a song, and they were making up a song about God. And it was really cool because, I mean, they were five and three. It's not like they could flow and rhyme a bunch of words. So they would just start, a, like they would say a phrase, and then they, they would repeat the phrase and build on the phrase. So the song went something like this, like, God, you were the one who created, and then they would pause, and then they would begin to sing, like, and because you created, you love what you created, and because you love what you created, you, you died for us, and it just went on and on. Seven minutes, the song was still going. I am not preacher exaggerating in front of you. The song got to 23 minutes long, and finally, I had to bring it to a close. I don't know if they were singing because they knew if they were singing songs about God, I couldn't make them go to bed or what, all right? So they're, they're still going, and finally, 23 minutes, we stopped. I put them to bed, and I came back in the room. 
started reading and writing this sermon on Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. And I was like, oh, my goodness, my boys just taught me what Ephesians 3, 4, uh, 1, 3 through 14 is all about. That what Paul is doing is not just a run-on sentence, it's run-on praise. He starts talking about the, how great God is and he couldn't stop. In Ephesians 1, Paul begins establishing identity in the life of the church. And if you're taking notes, I think that's important in Ephesians. He begins by establishing identity in the life of the church. And he does that through this long prayer or blessing from verse 3 through 14. And then there's this phrase that shows up three different times in the book of Ephesians. That for this reason. So he's taking whatever he just did and he's building on it as, he, as he's about to talk about something else. For this reason. And then he pray, Paul prays more in the book of Ephesians than any other book he writes. So he prays in Ephesians 1, 17 through 19. Where he talks about the, the uh, eyes of your hearts being enlightened and... Um, beautiful prayer. I'm going to skip through it just for a moment. And then in chapter 3 through 14, it's another time. We're for this reason. And I love this one right here, this, the prayer Paul prays in Ephesians 3. It ends with, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine. But I love in verse 14 when Paul's writing to him, he says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. And this is really pressed hard on me as a, as a leader of a church, as one who... who um, who my love for the Sycamore View Church has grown greater because of the hour I spend in our worship center every week uh, walking the pews and interceding for the church. And this verse right here has helped me a lot in that because Paul doesn't just tell people that he's praying. He tells them what he is praying. He tells them what he's praying, not just that he was praying. It's not just I'm praying for you. It's, hey, I do pray for you, and here's exactly what I pray. And Paul doesn't just tell them what he is praying. Paul also tells them what posture he prays in. Like, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. You get a sense right there in verse chapter 3 through 14 that when Paul is praying for the church, he is like going to bat for him. He's going before the throne of God with confidence. He is beating down the door of heaven for the blessings of God to fall on that church. And he begins praying this prayer. Um, now, if you go back to chapter 2 just quickly, what Paul does in chapter 2 is he walks him through, I, b- I believe, uh, what is core to the central of the gospel, that as for you, you're dead, but God, because of his great love for us, made us alive with Christ. Chapter 2, verse 10, some of you have this hanging on refrigerators, that we are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good, good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And then Paul, and throughout the rest of chapter 2, and I know I'm bouncing around a lot. I hope, I hope you're still following me. In chapter 2, what he does is he establishes communal identity. He begins talking to the church, telling them who they are in God. The Jews and Gentiles have been brought together. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two that's making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death, uh, uh, he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole body is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And the church said... We say amen. The first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul does not give them a single command. For three chapters, the first half of Ephesians, no commands. What he's doing is he's establishing identity. 
Now, the second half of Ephesians, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, Paul gives 35 commands. So once identity is established, now we talk about what it means to be God's people in the world. So what Paul does in Ephesians, uh, in Ephesians 4 is he begins uh, talking about a lot of Ephesians 4 is about equipping the body and then behavior. And I love this in Ephesians 4, 9 through 10. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And I love that line right there because the way, not just Paul, but the way the New Testament talks about the ascension of Jesus is not that this was an escape plan from Jesus. This was a positioning posture for Jesus that he ascends Not so he escapes the world and then wishes you luck and then comes back at the end. He ascends to put himself in a position where he can rain down blessings on the world so that he can fill all things. Isn't that a beautiful thought and imagery when it comes to prayer and how we think about God? In Ephesians 4, right after that, he begins talking about, and he speaks specifically to church leaders. He speaks to to the church. Here's what we exist for. To equip his people, verse 12, four works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. He's giving them purpose of why you exist and who we exist for. He makes this shift, and I know I'm going quickly through this. At the end of chapter 5, he begins talking about relationships and household codes. Paul does this in Ephesians 5 and 6. He also does this in Colossians 3. He also talks about some, some codes in 1 Corinthians. And what I love about this and why I think this is important for the church is that when Paul takes time to speak to husbands and wives, he doesn't like write a little paragraph or a little sentence in there, a transitional sentence that says, hey, you know, for the next moment I'm going to talk about the, to husbands and wives. So if you were single or if you're a kid, just dismiss yourself, go get some coffee, and then we'll bring you back in after we talk to husbands and wives. When Paul talks to singles and widows, he doesn't dismiss married people so he can talk to singles. Because as Paul's writing to the church, I think Paul wants people to be fully aware of the challenges that everyone else faces. And I think it's good for the church to do the same thing. Right? We need single people who are in the audience when we're talking about marriage. And we need married people who are in the audience when we talk to singles and to widows and to divorcees. So that everyone can be fully aware of how we need to be encouraged and, and the challenges we face in life. So Paul begins speaking to these relationships. In Ephesians 6.10 is where Paul begins preparing them for mission. And this is where uh, anybody who grew up in VBS, you're fully aware of the armor of God. And this is where Paul gives armor of God. So Paul doesn't begin Ephesians with the armor of God. Paul ends Ephesians with the armor of God. That finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Because as Paul writes Ephesians to people, who were living in a city full of all kinds of immorality. He's not giving them an escape plan, but an engaged plan. So as he establishes identity in the life of the church, he's preparing them and equipping them to navigate culture, to go make a difference for Jesus in the city where they lived in. And people believed it, and it worked. Now, we don't know exactly how he taught them to engage people in the community. We just know they did. And he prepares them. And the question isn't, do you go out into the city to make a difference? The question is, what do you wear as you do? And you make sure you are fully clothed. And that the church embraces a mission that we exist for something greater than ourselves. And today, for us to be able to navigate culture and to navigate the communities around us, we've got to be able to hang in some of the conversations that people find themselves in day in and day out. 
Mom, how did I do walking people through Ephesians? I know it's your favorite book. We good? All right. Mom, all right. <laughs> My mom's notorious for making up, <laughs> making up words. All right. <clears throat> Let me take you through one other place that I think is really important. This is a once a year. Multiple times a year, uh, Luke 6 is where I go to gauge my spiritual health. So this is usually a, a time I have in prayer with God. That Luke 6 is a place where I go to really like, measure and reflect on uh, how I am in God and am I living from a healthy place. And not only that, this is a conversation I lead our staff in at least once a year, and I ask the exact same questions every year. When I get a chance to travel and speak to church staffs, a lot of times I walk them through Luke 6. And I ask the same questions to churches. And what I found, at least with our own staff, I ask the same questions, but, but the answers are different every single year based on life experiences and ministry experiences. And Luke says, Henry Nowen's the first one who wrote something uh, 25, 30 years ago where he talks about the Jesus paradigm, the Jesus rhythm. And looking in this room, it looks like we've got people who have all kinds of amazing rhythm. So, so you get that word, right? We're, we're all over that. Uh, my boys do have rhythm, and we, we sometimes have dance parties in our house. We, I came home from church a few weeks ago, a few months ago, and I came home from church, and my wife was like, Josh, I opened my eyes in worship today, and our boys were dancing. And uh, sometimes we, we put on praise music in our house, and we dance before the Lord, and it's, it's awesome. Uh, so my boys translated that and took it into a worship service. So my wife's pretty expressive in worship. So she said she was just caught up in a song and her eyes were closed and her hands were raised. And she just happened to open her eyes and she looked over. And Noah, my youngest, was flossing during a song with his eyes closed. He's flossing. And my oldest son, Truett, had his eyes closed. And he was just, just dancing before the Lord. And I said, what did you do? And she's like, I was about to stop him, but the person sitting behind me put his hand on my shoulder and said, don't you dare tell those kids to stop dancing before the Lord. So she said, I just let them dance. All right, so, uh, <laughs> all right let me walk through the Jesus rhythm just real quick. In Luke chapter 6, verse 12, it says Jesus spent the entire night in prayer with God. We see Jesus do this multiple times. So he spends the night rooting himself in the Father, connecting to God. Right after that, the next verse that Jesus calls together a community of the 12. So he goes from solitude to community. And from that moment on, Jesus is going to have those 12 in almost every single story that happens throughout the Gospels. And then immediately after that, and it gives their names in verse 14, 15, 16, so I don't have the names up there. But immediately after that in verse 17, it talks about how Jesus began engaging in ministry. So Jesus went down with them and he stood on a level place. And then he begins teaching, he's driving out demons, he's healing diseases, and then he gives what is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, where Jesus begins teaching and proclaiming. So you have solitude, community, and ministry. So the question I ask of our staff every year, we look at solitude, community, and ministry, and the question I ask is right now in your life, which one of these comes easiest to you and which one is the most difficult? The answers change every year. Let me, uh, let me do it right now. When you look at those three, so solitude is like connecting, the, connecting to God. So prayer life, connecting to God in, in, the, uh, in, the, in that kind of way. Community, this is not loving your community. This is like loving your neighbors. Community is about like meaningful relationships in your life. And then ministry could be, uh, it could be preaching, but this is compassion. This is service. This is justice. How many of you would say right now in your life, solitude is the easiest for you? Just a show of hands. How many of you would say solitude is the hardest for you in your life? 
okay? How many of you would say when it comes to community, that is the easiest for you, meaningful relationships? How many of you would say that's the biggest challenge for you? All right, how many of you would say ministry, compassion, justice, that's easiest for you? Hardest? How many of you didn't lift a hand for anything? We've got a few of you. (laughs) Because then, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands on this, but if you were to ask this question for your church, what would the answer be? Which one's easiest for your church? Like connecting with God through worship and prayer, community, so life groups and relational building, ministry, compassion, justice, and which one is the hardest for you? And I don't think this is a rhythm that Jesus hands on to the apostles that the apostles end up handing on to the church. And it's like a three-legged stool. And, and whenever I teach this and as I reflect on it, I don't, I don't think the, the call of God on your life is to have like a third of your life in solitude and a third of your life in community and a third ministry. We're wired different. God is wired us differently. He's created us differently. But I do think this is like a three-legged stool. And that if there's a major void with one of these that is not being cultivated at all, that stool is going to be off. And this is true in the church, too. So when it comes to navigating Christ and culture, when it comes to connecting with people outside of the body, when it comes to being able to hang in conversations with people about things going on in the world, I think this is, I think this is important, that we are people who are connected in the heart of God. So we have substance. We're digging into the truth. We have meaningful relationships in our lives. Because it's through meaningful relationships we're able to, to talk through things and hear them out and to hear other people's perspectives. And that we are engaging in ministry and service because if that thing, if that is neglected, if we are upset with the world and mad at the world because of how the world's behaving, how are we going to love the world that God's called us to be a part of saving, right? Um, so uh, my wife, when she was uh, in first grade, she wanted glasses really bad. So she um, told her mom that she couldn't see. And then she told her teacher at school that she was having trouble seeing. So she got moved up to the front row. And really, this was all an effort for my wife to have glasses that looked like a, her friend who had glasses. It had ABCs all over them. She just, she wanted glasses. So she began to lie for days about her eyesight. Her mom took her to an eye doctor. She purposely, first grade, she was a great liar in first grade. She says she's better now, all right? She, she lied through every test. They sent her to a specialist they had to pay hundreds of dollars to go to a specialist. She lied through those, but they had the, they had the, I mean, the specialist was able just to read the eye, and the specialist came out and was like, Karen, she talks to my mother-in-law. The, the specialist did, like, Karen, your daughter's eyes are better than your eyes are with glasses on, all right? Like, she's fine. So my wife was grounded for years. Still a great story, all right? Um, I went my entire life without glasses. I had great vision. Till last summer, I just, I found, I mean, I, my sermon notes, where are my notes up here? My sermon notes are like this. They're like eight-point font. So I've had great, I, I, I mean, all my life. But last summer, I would find myself reading and kind of shaking my head. Like, man, what is wrong with you? And I couldn't see straight. So I went to a doctor for the first time since probably third grade. I went to an eye doctor. And I did all the tests. You know, you cover up an eye. You read a chart. And then she's like, okay, now put your forehead on this one, and this is where the, the air blows into your eye. And I was like, you, you have got to be kidding me. Like, since I was in the third grade, of all the advances we've made in science and medicine, you haven't come up with something that can take the place of the poofy air machine? Like, that's, we still got to blow air in eyes to see if about eyes. So went through all that and come to find out my eyes aren't bad, but I have to have reading glasses on now. When it comes to how we think about the world, 
I think what's so important for people to reflect on is what is the lens that we are putting on to, th- to view the world through? Uh, because if the lens that we are using that is forming our worldview is a lens of media and news outlets more than it is the gospel, then we're not seeing right. The people who often come to me and they talk about how fearful they are about life and about their kids and about the world we live in, usually I can find a kind way to ask a question of how much media do you absorb a day? And usually the people, hands down, who are the most fearful are people who are absorbing and taking in large amounts of news and media every single day. And I'm not anti-news and I'm not anti-media. But what? let me just go through a few questions that I think are important. How do I see God? How do I think about God? For me in my life, the ways, the primary things when I think about God is that God is the one who created in the beginning and God is still the one who is creating now. That God delivered in the Exodus and God is still delivering now. That God is a God of steadfast love. That God has liberation and deliverance on his mind. How do I see God? How do I see God's mission? Um, I think a lot of times we just want to cheer on God, like, God, you go and you go save people and you go deliver people and you go help people. And we want to cheer God on, like, God, go do it. And I think God's looking at the church saying, hey, I want to, but I've chosen to use the church to empower the church. Every once in a while, somebody will come to me and they'll say, Josh, why don't you end a sermon with the five points of salvation? Or with a call to baptism, every sermon. And I I usually, first of all, I'll explain to people uh, kind of just my craft of preaching and and how I want to end every sermon. But then I'll ask in a kind way, when is the last time you brought someone to church who needs to hear the invitation that you would like for me to give? Because if the first time you're bringing someone to church and the first time they're hearing the gospel is from the preacher... Like what you need is a better understanding of how God is empowering every single believer to be a witness in whatever context they are in. So how do you see God's mission in the world? And how do I see the world? Because I I think this is so key. This right here. I think most of us have a conflict when it comes to how we treat the world. Is which one of these verses trumps the other? John 3.16 is, for God so loved the world. Could you think of another verse in the Bible that is more well-known than this one? For God so loved the world. And 1 John 2, 15 is, do not love the world or anything in it. And I think we know, I think we know that, you know, you're called to be in the world but not of the world. And I think we know how to navigate this. But in the life of our churches, how do we do this? Uh, Are we asking God to help us to love the world the way God loves the world? Because I was working people, I was, I was working with the church staff a few weeks ago, and, and we were having this uh, wonderful conversation about what I'm talking to you about today. About solitude and community and ministry and justice and what it means for the church to be the church in the world. And, and one woman, and, and she was not like pushing back on me, saying that anything I was saying was wrong. She just said, Josh, when I think about it, though, like one sour apple can make all the apples go bad. And she said, I was just taught in the church, like, you just, you don't engage with any, you know, any place in the world that isn't, you know, isn't reflecting good morals. You just don't go there when it comes to friends. And I was like, I get it. I totally get it. And I don't want to totally throw out the image or the metaphor of, like, one bad apple making all the apples bad. I mean, we want people to have a moral compass, right? 
But there are other images and metaphors that the Bible uses. Like how light can penetrate darkness. How salt can spread. So there are other images and metaphors too. Um, here are some of the challenges of the conversation we're having today. I hope that we're having when it comes to especially how the church navigates Christ and culture and that we work through social issues, is here are five challenges. Number one are misaligned allegiances. And a statement I keep coming back to, and I've I preached through a series not too long ago about this in our church, and the statement I gave them every week was that the church is at its best when we are pressing into God and paying just enough attention to the world that we know how to navigate kingdom life. And that we are at our worst when we are pressing into the things of the world and paying just enough attention to God to make us feel righteous. We're at our best when we're pressing into God and paying just enough attention to the world that we know how to navigate kingdom life. And we're at our worst when we are pressing into the world and paying just enough attention to God to make us feel righteous. Another challenge is new community. I think for most of our churches, we're becoming more diverse than ever before. And I'm not just talking about racially or ethnically diverse. We have more generations in our churches. There are a lot of Sundays I'm preaching in front of five generations of people. People that are coming from different theological perspectives, backgrounds. Yet Jesus talks about how the world will know who I am by the way you love each other. Like the way the church loves each other becomes a witness to the world. And I think how the church, uh, how the world... How people outside the church sees the church engaging in issues that are going on in life today is a witness to them, whether that witness is good or bad. Another statement I come back to quite a bit is, as a church, are we more concerned about protecting the establishment of the church or restoring the world God has called us to love? Fourthly, individualism is a challenge for us today. That sometimes what concerns people is like my relationship with God and not thinking about the church and what it means for the church to come together and live in unity and be about the mission. And the fifth one is nationalism. And I think all I'll say about this today is that the driving question for the church cannot be what is the best thing for America. The driving question for the church has to always be what is best for the kingdom of God. And that doesn't mean the question of what is best for America is not a good question or one we don't need to wrestle with. It just cannot be the central question that's forming and shaping who we are. It's what is best for the kingdom of God. Um, so what I'll talk more about tomorrow is about 18 months ago, I led our, our leaders through a conversation specifically about social issues. Because I wanted to gauge within our leadership. So at the time, we had 20 elders and seven full-time ministers. So we had 27 people that I led through this survey to try to prioritize social issues. We felt like it was important for us to speak into in the life of our church, just to educate people. Not to tell people exactly what to think about the issues, but just to help educate them on the issues. But I also led them through a discussion of, let's take the same social issue and let's also say and prioritize what we think the people in our community think about this issue. 
Because if people in our community are saying immigration is the greatest concern for us today and it's at the bottom of the church, we may need to look at those and think, okay, if we're going to navigate a community that's becoming more and more Latino, maybe we need to be a little more aware of the challenges they face. Does this make sense? I'll talk more about it tomorrow. Through all of that, there's some things that bubbled up. Because one question is, what are the best places for us to have conversations in the church about things that are going on in the world? And we don't always feel like Sunday morning is the best place for that. So over the last three years or four years, I've created a forum where we've met multiple times. And we just have a two-hour forum on a weekday night where we bring people together. And it's a, it's, it's just, it's a healthy environment for us to discuss Black Lives Matter and racism and LGBTQ and, and uh, what it means for single parents, the challenges that single parents face. and uh, it's, it's, So we've had to focus on space. I did a sermon series back in February, and I'll talk more about this tomorrow, but it was a sermon series called Taboo. I spent six months working our elders through what these discussions were going to be about, and I took three weeks where I talked about the Me Too movement, sexual abuse, and church too. I took a week where I talked about mental illness, and in that sermon, I talked about mental illness, depression, anxiety, and suicide, all in one sermon. And then I spent a week talking about immigration. So tomorrow, I want to talk to you more about what that process was like as a leadership and as a church. And if I were to go back, what are some things I would do differently? Um, let me end with one, one more story, and then I think, we have about, I think we'll have about 10 minutes maybe for some comments or Q&A. Um, <clears throat> When I was finished in grad school, we were asked, like, the final paper was, what is your metaphor for ministry? So if you could come up with a metaphor for how you think about what it means to be a leader, what is it? So we had people who did, uh, I remember there being a metaphor about, I mean, coach, and a coach was one. Um, somebody wrote a letter about being the director of a symphony. And, and my paper was on how ministry is like being a crossing guard. And we, uh, where my boys go to school, not too far from our house, there's a, a six-lane road, and it is cars. Memphis drivers are crazy. I don't care where you live. Memphis drivers are crazier than your drivers. I can almost guarantee it, all right? Um, we have two crossing guards, sometimes three in this intersection because one's not enough. So I watch these women, how they get kids through intersections, and when I wrote this paper, I was living in Abilene, and our house was right by an intersection by Taylor Elementary School. So I watched crossing guards do their thing every day. And one thing that caught me was a crossing guard, if they're doing what they're supposed to do, they do it well. They're not just sitting in a chair on one side of the road. And when it looks like the way is clear, patting kids on the back and saying, go ahead, it looks good, you can go. And crossing guards don't stay on one side of the street with kids on another side of the street. When it looks clear, they don't just wave them over. But instead, the crossing guards are walking with people through the intersections and crossroads of life, which I think is what leadership in the church is meant to be about. They were walking with, through, with people through intersections, through crossroads, through the grind. And we are doing this for the sake of the world. All right.